seeing church history in the, uh, in the program this morning flushed a lot of people who suddenly realized they had a birthday party to attend at, you know, 1130 this morning. Hopefully we'll make it interesting. In fact, we're actually going to take a, a few minutes at the very beginning to talk about, you know, why study church history at all. We're actually going to really be following up kind of from where Ron left off the last couple of weeks. Remember, he took us through the first few years after Christ returned and uh, got us back at, towards the end of Acts. And where we're going to be studying in church history is, as you see there, the first century and a little bit beyond, very, very early after, uh, you know, the Paul and Peter and those men lived. Some of these uh, people who we're going to be studying the next several weeks actually probably knew apostles. That's how early we are. I uh, just want to remind you, as always, uh, if you consider yourself a newcomer, you're more than welcome to join uh, either Pastor Matt or Pastor Ken's classes, newcomers and uh, orientate, new members orientation classes. And uh, also I wanted to uh, remind you that Wednesday night classes for kids and adults start up again this Wednesday. So we were, we were off last week, but we'll be back up again this Wednesday the 7th. So we're going to take a look back for three weeks. Uh, we're going to study uh, an ancient church writing for each of the next three weeks. If you're like me, as you went through school, there were certain subjects you either loved or you hated. And I could mention some of those. If I mentioned chemistry, I probably get, oh, from some people and a, oh, from others. History is one of those. You either love it or you hate it. It's like spelling. Some people are born with the ability to spell, and some people aren't. Now, those who aren't can always work harder at it, but it's kind of an innate thing. And I think that in some ways, with math or science or history or literature, you're either bent towards one or towards the other. So I understand if today you're thinking, church history, boy, that's, that's really not what I was looking forward to. I, well, I can't, Zach, just like walk us through you know, uh, a couple chapters in the New Testament or the Old Testament or something. Well, I admit, this is a little bit of a step out of the comfortable for me, too, because I'm not going to be exegeting these texts. They're not Scripture. They're not to the level of Scripture. And so we have to ask the question, why study church history at all? Well, let me flip that around. What would you say are the reasons why you wouldn't study church history? I'm guessing not one of you, or if so, maybe only a handful, has read anything from the first century other than Scripture, at least not recently. I know I didn't, except for classes at, at seminary, and that sparked an interest in me. Well, why not? What are some of the reasons people might not want to study? Well, they, they say that non-Scripture from the first centuries is weird or even heretical. Maybe you've read a little bit from the Apocrypha, or maybe, you know, some other writings, and it's just, it's odd. It doesn't flow like Scripture. There's some practices in there like baptizing infants or whatever. You're just like, boy, that, that doesn't really sound like orthodoxy. That sounds odd. That, that sounds weird or even heretical. And there are many writings from the first couple of centuries after Christ that have some major flaws in them. I won't dispute that. Um, a very common one, we evangelicals, we have the Bible. Sola Scriptura, that was the rallying cry of the Reformation. We don't need the Apocrypha. We don't need church tradition. We have God's Word. That's our only and final authority. 
So we don't need those early church writings. The, the Roman Catholic, they put a lot more stress on the early church writings than we do. They consider a lot of times the church fathers like Augustine, who's going to be later than what we'd look at in the uh, fourth and fifth centuries, but they consider someone like Augustine to be almost on the level of Scripture or even on the level of Scripture, depending on who you talk to. So we have sometimes the tendency to reject these human works because they don't match up to Scripture. And possibly you just say, you know what? It's boring. It's hard to read. It's not my cup of tea. I'd rather read Max Lucado, honestly. Augustine, eh. Go back even further to guys like Ignatius or Clement. I've heard those names, but I just don't really know what they have to offer me. So let me just give three brief reasons. Hopefully, as we study these three texts over the next three weeks, I'll be able to at least give you a little sense of why thousands of years of believers, thousands, have revered these texts, not on the level of Scripture, but have treated them with great honor and have gotten great uh, blessing from them. Hopefully you'll be able to see that. So why study church history? Well, the first thing I'd say is that Christianity is a historical religion. Makes sense, right? Jesus and the apostles were historical figures. They lived. Not only that, they looked back on the history of God's people in the Old Testament, with Israel and the other people that interacted with each other and with God, and that we have record of in the Old Testament. Christianity is a historical religion. Don't let anybody ever tell you otherwise that Christians don't really have a good grasp of history because they do, or at least they should. It's rooted in true historical fact. And Christians stand in a long line of people of faith who knew God and who sought to serve him. You are connected to people like Clement, to the writers of what we're going to look at today, which is called the Didache, You're connected to Augustine. You're connected to Martin Luther, to John Calvin. You're connected to Jonathan Edwards. You're connected to Billy Graham. You're connected to these people, warts and all, who served God and loved God, and we have written record of them throughout the centuries of what they did, the mistakes they made, the triumphs they had, and how they interpreted Scripture and how they saw themselves in Scripture. You're connected to them. And I would say, writings from the early Christian leaders, and what we're going to look at very early are called the church fathers. In fact, the apostolic church fathers, or the patristics. Patristics obviously being from paternal fathers. The church fathers shed light on how our faith developed in the first few centuries. You can see that transition roiling the book of Acts. Who's in the church? What's involved with being a Christian? What, you know, what do we do when persecution comes? How do we handle church leaders? What about apostles and prophets? And we're going to see some of those same tensions and questions popping up in our studies of these very early documents. They are us in a different time. They're not apostles. They're not infallible. But most of them, I, the ones that we're going to look at specifically the next three weeks, and others I would commend you like Ignatius, Polycarp, and men like that, they're not heretics either. They're godly men and women who love the Lord, and we can learn from their interaction and from their development as Christianity went from being just a little Jewish offshoot in the first few months after Christ returned 
to being something that swept the world as they knew it. So this morning, we're going to look at the Didache. That's how you pronounce that. The longer title is The Teaching of the Lord to the Gentiles by the Twelve Apostles. You can see why people just shortened it to The Teaching, Didache. And and it's been stated it's a handbook for the early church, a type of manual. And I think that's probably most accurate. Um, It was very popular with Christians for hundreds of years. But... It was quoted by some of the church fathers like Athanasius, Eusebius. But until 1873, scholars had never found a complete copy of the Didache. They saw a quotation here, a quotation there from other sources. But they knew it existed, but they really didn't know all of what it taught. They just got little glimpses of it. But in 1873, there was a Greek Orthodox scholar working in Constantinople, who found a manuscript dated from 1054. And that is actually a copy of a page of the Didache from that manuscript. And I took Greek for quite a few semesters, and I still couldn't read that. (laughs) But it was found in Constantinople. He translated it. He worked with it. It eventually became part of the Eastern Orthodox's library at Jerusalem. And so it became known as the Jerusalem Codex, or Codex H. And this was uh, a monumental find because it not only contained the full text of the Didache, but it contained texts of many other very early Christian writings that they thought had been lost to the ages or that they had an incomplete copy of. Uh, One of the works, First Clement, that we're going to study next week was included here as well, a great copy of that. Um, Most of you probably don't remember, but I'm sure you've read books from the 20th century, Christians who were ecstatic about the Dead Sea Scrolls, discovered in 1947. And the excitement in 1873, and then when the full text was finally published, I think in 1883, was comparable to the excitement in the Christian world when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947, if that provides a point of comparison for you. So we're going to look at every week several key facts about our particular book that we're going to be studying. You're not going to be tested over this, and we will eventually get into the heart of the teaching, but I think it's important to understand where we're headed. So let me familiarize you a little bit with the Didache. We don't know who it was written by. In all likelihood, it's, it's not, doesn't have a, an author's signature. In all likelihood, it was written by several people, by a group perhaps a group of elders, a group of deacons, perhaps even prophets or apostles, early in the first century, as we'll see. And they think that it may have been actually written in a rural setting, like Antioch in Syria or Egypt. That would make it one of the only early church writings that came not from a city, the hubbub of a city and a university, but actually from a rural area. Very possibly one church put a form of the Didache together, and then other churches throughout the centuries used it, adapted it for their own use. So there's nothing magical about the Didache, the form that we have now. It came to us adapted and added and tweaked throughout the centuries. It's a compendium, a composite of ideas from the First Testament, from the first century. And as far as I can tell, there's many different ideas. It doesn't date itself. But as far as I can tell, it probably was written between 80 and 120 A.D., which would put it 50, 75 years after 
Christ very, very early. And so some of the reasons up there, uh, there are prophets and apostles mentioned, and we know that by like 150, 175, 200, there were no apostles or prophets being mentioned anymore. That class had died off. That infallible class who brought God's word directly to God's people was no longer on the scene since the scripture had been completed. They talk about, as we'll see, baptizing in streams. Again, once you get later into the second century, they have baptistries. They have buildings that they are uh, baptizing indoors. It's not an outdoors activity anymore, partly because the level of persecution from the Roman Empire had increased drastically in the second and third centuries. And then there's an obvious Jewish influence. Ron made mention of this uh, to a degree, Christianity discovering its identity. Are we a Jewish offshoot of Judaism? Or are we, as Christ said, unto the end of the world? Remember, Acts 1.8. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the, of the world. That was Christ's goal, but it took the early church a little longer to get to that point. It really wasn't until Paul and his missionary journeys that you start seeing the gospel and these Christian communities pop up throughout the Roman Empire. Who is it written to? This is a very key word. It's not a word that we use. Again, it's a word that if you come from a Catholic background, you might be more familiar with. If you come from an Eastern Orthodox background, catechumens, what does that mean? Well, what does it look like? Catechism, right? A catechism, again, it's not an inherently wrong thing to have a list of questions and answers, doctrinal questions and proper answers to that. It's not something perhaps that we're familiar with, but a catechumen in the early church was a category that I think has been lost to the ages. Maybe we shouldn't have lost it. They're new converts who had professed Christ, but they didn't have anything like, come forward, we'll baptize you the same night that you make a profession, you join the church, we'll get it all done in one night, brother. They didn't do that. There'd be a period of months, even years, from the point when someone made a profession to the point when they were accepted as a full-fledged member of the church. And the reason for that being, they took very seriously the fact that Jesus had said he wanted a pure church. And the apostles had written about that. They didn't want to bring someone in without good evidence that they were a believer, that they were on board with the teachings of the apostles. Hence, the title, The Teachings of the Apostles, the Didache. So it was written to these catechumens who weren't allowed to vote, who weren't allowed to take communion. They weren't members yet, but they were associated with the church. They were learning. They were growing in their faith. They were being discipled, as we'll see. And so why was it written? To instruct these new converts in the way they should live and worship as Christians. <clears throat> the structure of the Didache is that uh, the first six chapters are two ways. We'll look at that a little bit more. Moral instructions for these new converts. How are they supposed to look in a pagan culture? Chapter 7 through 10 talk about the church ordinances, a liturgy, Again, maybe not a word that you're familiar with or makes you a little uncomfortable. We'll look at some of the strengths and weaknesses of liturgy. uh, Chapters 11 through 15, church order, particularly which church leaders deserve your attention? Which traveling 
apostles and prophets who want to come into your church and speak a word from the Lord, should you respect? How do you evaluate their teaching? And then finally, chapter 16 is a very brief apocalypse of eschatological events. Um, presents a vaguely premillennial view that God will come back and reign, Christ will come back and reign on the earth. I'm not going to spend much time there today. Uh, it's something that you might want to look up yourself, but it's, it's the briefest of all these sections. So let me ask you, why is the Didache valuable? We asked, why would we study church history? Well, it connects us. There has, there's great value in seeing how our faith developed, and some of those reasons come into play here with the Didache. Let me read you quotations from two very conservative scholars. One of them actually teaches at John MacArthur's uh, college out in California, but two quotations. First of all, he says, I do not need the Didache as an authority for what I believe, but I also want to know if what I believe is contrary to what the earliest Christians believed. I don't need the Didache to validate my beliefs, but I want to check and see if what I believe has a historical basis, if there's a foundation for that. The second quote says that the Didache offers believers in our day a tangible link to the church of the apostles being from the first century. It may have gotten its final form a little later, but I'm going to refer to it as a first century document. I think it reflects first century thinking in the church. The Bible is indeed, continuing with our quotation, our only source of God's inspired word. But in true pastoral fashion, the Didache can help explain and clarify God's word. Clarify, that's a very, very key word to keep in mind. It's not contradicting, hopefully. I think it does a couple of times. I think they overstepped their bounds, the writers of the Didache, and misinterpreted apostolic teaching. But for the most part, they're not contradicting Scripture. They're clarifying it. They're applying it to their specific situation in the first century, just like we would do today. When Pastor Ken gets up here and preaches, he's not just quoting Scripture. I mean, he could read Scripture, read through the entire book of Ephesians, and call it a day. But what he does is he exposits that. He pulls the eternal take-home truth out for us. He feeds our hearts with that. He applies it to the challenges that are specific to us in 21st century America. And in some ways, that's why he says it's a pastoral fashion. It clarifies and explains God's word. So I want to do three, look at three themes through the Didache, three sections of it that I think will help us. My goal is not to just force information down your throat. You don't have a copy of the Didache in front of you. I hope to change that. I've been in contact with the author of this book, The Apostolic Fathers in English, Michael Holmes. They did a terrific job. It's a textbook at the seminary in uh, John Aloisi's first semester of church history. And I'd like to get a copy of part of the Didache, at least, part of First Clement, part of the Epistle to Diognetus in your hands, maybe at the end of our three-week session, because I really feel like if you read these documents for yourself, if you spend some time in them, in your own personal time with God, you will see the richness of them. You will see the value why Christians for thousands of years have held these books in high regard. So we're going to look at how the Didache presents the early church's view of discipleship. I mentioned a little bit already about the catechumens. We're going to look at how the early church viewed leaders in a time of transition between apostles and prophets and then permanent 
leaders, elders, deacons. And we're going to look briefly at the early church's view of the ordinances, which is, I think, especially apropos, coming up in a couple of weeks, we'll be talking, we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper as a church, not baptism, just because of the reasons Pastor mentioned. But we'll be celebrating a version of our Ordinance Sunday. So we'll see how the Didache viewed the ordinances. First of all, I want to look at the discipleship, ethical guidelines in a pagan culture, how I'm summarizing it. Ethical guidelines in a pagan culture. And I should mention, you're going to recognize some of these verses. Some of them are quotes of Scripture, particularly Matthew. Some of them are allusions where they took a few words from the Bible and fit it into a sentence. They call that an allusion, not necessarily a direct quotation. But the Didache has a very high regard for Scripture. And I think it's interesting, others smarter than I have pointed this out, the the writers of the Didache did not claim authority in themselves. They pointed back to God's word and said, this is the authority for what we're giving you. That is the authority for the instructions, the regulations that we're giving you to carry out in your churches. The very first verse of the Didache says, there are two ways one of life and one of death. And there is a great difference between these two ways. Sets the tone for the whole first five chapters. And actually that two ways is borrowed heavily, at least the style, of Jewish teaching. And you see that, I won't go to it now, but you see that in Deuteronomy 30, where Moses set two ways before Israel. Said you can serve the Lord God or you can disobey him. Here are the two ways. Choose which way you're going to serve. It was very binary, black or white. Serve God or disobey him. Psalm 1, if you think about it, there's the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. So in good Jewish fashion, as some scholars believe the Didache was so early that it was actually written by Jewish Christians, we see a two-ways section where the writer's gave the people, gave these new converts instructions on what it looked like. You're in a pagan Roman culture, a pagan Greek culture. You're scattered around the globe. People think you're a cult. How are you supposed to live? And I think it's interesting. There's a very high view of Christians as people. They are called to live in a very loving, noble, gentle way. 1.3 says, Bless those who curse you. And pray for your enemies and fast for those who persecute you. For what credit is it if you love those who love you? Does it sound familiar? It should. Taken from Jesus, almost exactly from Jesus' words in Matthew. 2.7, you shall not hate anyone. Instead, you shall reprove some and pray for some. And some you shall love more than your own life. And this is a theme of the Didache. Christians are people who love but not indiscriminately. They love other people. They sacrifice. They show unworldly compassion. But still, it has limits. There are boundaries. And we'll see that as we go through. I think that's such a key verse. You shall not hate anyone, anyone, but some you need to reprove, some you can't reprove, so you only pray for them, and some you love more than your own life. Particularly, I think, those in your community, in your local church, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Doesn't Scripture itself say 
that we need to do good to all men, but especially to those who are in the household of faith. So the Didache follows that pattern of inordinate love, but that still is reasonable, that still has what we would say are boundaries. And there are some commands, I won't list all the text, but uh, forbid specifically common activities of the day, such as sorcery. And let me tell you, over and over and over again, I couldn't list all the, all the references to sorcery or to soothsaying. Apparently, that was something that the Christians of that day still had in their bloodstream. If you lived in the first century, whether a Roman or a pagan culture, you were going to be sucked into that. You were going to have that all around you. Multiple gods, pray to this one, see what the gods say we should do with this particular activity. What's the future hold? And the writers of the Didache, in no uncertain language, told their catechumen, their new converts, that is not something that is ever okay for Christians to be involved in. Abortion. Did you know that abortion was very, very common in the first century? The New Testament doesn't say much about it, if anything. And so some people have concluded it's really not that important. God didn't care. He didn't consider unborn children to be alive, to be human. But the Didache follows the overall message of Scripture, which is a a great reverence for human life, for those who are made in God's image. And it goes on to say you will not specifically commit abortion. Sometimes they left their babies, they exposed them, they'd leave them out in a field, unwanted children. But they also had chemical and surgical procedures to exterminate the life of an unborn baby in the first century. And so the Didache is very clear, that is not something that Christians should ever do or condone. And also ignoring the poor, showing less than a compassionate spirit to those who are unfortunate, showing greed, chasing after money. These aren't unbiblical themes, they are biblical themes, but that the Didache gives a very particular slant for that people who are listening to this. And then I think it's interesting, after a long list of evil practices at near the end of the section, may you be delivered, children, from all these things, the pastoral heart of the writers of the Didache, setting guidelines, yes, but doing it in love to protect these new converts who needed to know what is a Christian look like in the first century. As we continue on looking at discipleship, there are three types of commands in the Didache. And I think it's interesting to, uh, to keep that in mind as we read. The first is a direct command from Scripture. It says, Do not be lustful, for lust leads to sexual immorality. Didache 3.3. Very, very similar to Paul's teaching, not only in Corinthians, but in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5. It's not having to do much rephrasing to give the exact heart of what Paul wanted, which is to say that lust, that sexual sin comes from a lustful heart. And the Didache has many instances of that where they just rephrase or directly quote scripture and say this is not okay for Christians or this is commanded of Christians. There's another category though. This is a logical application of biblical teaching. Look at that one up there. It says, let your gift sweat in your hands until you know to whom to give it. Remember what I said about love that has reasonable boundaries. And the Didache, this is right at the end of a section where the Didache says, yes, you need to be generous, you need to be prepared to give, but 
If you give to someone who doesn't need it, if you give to an unworthy cause, it'd be better that you didn't give at all than that you, for you to have wasted your money. So that is not a quote from Scripture. It may be a, a, a non-biblical source, like an apocryphal type source, but it's saying there, it is better, yes, to be ready to give and be generous, but to make sure that is being given wisely, that you are using discretion in how you distribute those funds. And no less uh, a good and conservative and uh, praiseworthy scholar than Wayne Grudem has looked at some of the, te- of the commands in the Didache like this and said, that's unbiblical. Jesus never said to let your gift sweat in your hands. So that's unbiblical. The Didache has unbiblical instruction. And this next category, the third, I think there are some ways where the Didache strays from what the, the New Testament and the entire tone of Scripture commanded God's people. But I think Grudem's being a little harsh, not just I, but others too. Because they're not contradicting Scripture. They're adding a level of clarification, of logical application to help people understand what, when Jesus says, be generous, when the apostles say, don't lust, what are the specific instances where that would pop up in our lives? How can that help us? How can that equip us in our faith? And then there are very specific commands unique to that culture. You shall not give orders to your male servant or female servant who hope in the same God as you when you are angry. Think how specific that is. You are a slave owner. You're a Christian and you have Christian slaves. Wow, that just immediately narrowed it down, didn't it? Most people were not slave owners. Most slave owners were not Christians. And of the slaves that a slave owner, a Christian slave owner had back then, maybe none of those or some of those would be Christian. So it instantly narrows it down. It's extremely specific. And it says, don't be angry when you give them commands. Now, is that legalistic? I don't know. It's extremely specific to tell a narrow swath of the, each church, you be careful when you're angry, don't give commands to your Christian slaves. The second one is keep strictly away from meat sacrifice to idols. What did Paul say in his letters to Corinth? Did he say, keep strictly away from meat sacrifice to idols? No, he didn't. And I think this is an instance where Paul gives a nuanced presentation. This is the only verse on the topic in the Didache. Paul gives over several chapters a presentation that says meat sacrificed to idols is not inherently evil. If it's been, you know, blessed by God, you're free to do that. However, there's a deeper issue of Christian liberty there. And so Paul teases that out and teaches us what it means on a controversial issue, which we have no shortage of today, how to have a biblical understanding of a controversial issue. The Didache just flatly says, ah, no meat offered idols for you. It makes it a black and white issue. And so I do think at times that some of these, new, these early texts didn't do the work that they could have. They draw a line where God doesn't. And we have to be careful of that too. When we're discipling people, we have to be careful that the line we draw and how hard we draw that line doesn't overstep God's lines. And then the last one, I think, is just plain funny. The hypocrites fast on Monday and Thursday, so you must fast on Wednesday and Friday. You shouldn't be concerned with appearances like the hypocrites, so just make sure you're not, 
you know, aping them. Again, extremely specific, bordering on legalism, but you can see the heart behind it. We don't want to be like those people. We want to have a clean, pure Christian testimony. So don't give, anger, don't give angry orders to your servants. Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Just stay away from that altogether. Don't fast on the days when people know that hypocrites fast. So I would say overall, before I move to the next one, uh, the Didache's teaching on discipleship, yes, does it sometimes strain the legalism? It does. But I think going through the Didache, and I hope you do at some point, you will see the heart of those people for young converts. And I would challenge you, do you have that same heart for new Christians? Do you have that same attitude that wants to mentor new Christians, that takes delight in bringing them in? Think of this catechumen as a a kind of Christian apprenticeship. They came in, they learned, they grew. People taught them in love Christ's teachings. They taught them applications of that. They helped them. And if you look at that and say, wow, that's a little strange. Why would we wait that long to baptize someone? I would challenge you, take a new Christian in our church, someone who hasn't known the Lord as long as you have. Do the men's or women's discipleship programs that we have with them. Use the experience, the maturity and the faith that God has given you to reach out and help that person. That's the heart of the Didache. Let's look at the church leaders. As I said, this was a time of transition in Didache 11 through 15. The Didache talks much about apostles and prophets, but it also talks about resident church leaders, elders and deacons. So there's kind of a, uh, of an, of a balance of perhaps an, an uneasy tension between these people who brought God's word directly and these people who taught God's word indirectly. One was more of a temporary class, and the other we still have with us today. The first verse that really talks about church leaders, My child, night and day, remember the one who preaches God's word to you, and honor him as though he were the Lord. Does that seem strong? Perhaps. Honor Pastor Ken as if he were Jesus? (laughs) No thanks, I've eaten with him. (laughs) No, I've, I've heard him when he was, you know, tired. I've heard him when he was a little cranky. He's not Jesus. But remember, Jesus had an earthly ministry in the flesh. And it is telling people who lived less than 100 years after Jesus was on this earth, you have someone who is bringing God's word to you, who is shepherding you. You need to treat them as the Lord. You need to treat them with the reverence and respect and attention that you would treat if Jesus or one of his apostles was here teaching right now. And then it talks about a category of, I would say, transient teachers. One scholar made a good point. He said there was kind of a network of Christian teachers, of apostles, of prophets, of those like Timothy and Titus who had been appointed by apostles, who traveled those excellent Roman roads, bringing God's word to local congregations, fledgling groups of Christians who didn't have all the truth yet who were missing it, they didn't have God's word like we have it today. They couldn't crack open a book and read through huge sections of God's word. They had maybe a letter from here, 
a letter that had been hand-copied from there. And so they depended on these traveling ministers to bring them God's word, to tell them what God wanted them to know. If anyone, 11, 1 through 2 says, if anyone should come and teach you all these things that have just been mentioned above, welcome him. But if the teacher himself goes astray and teaches a different teaching that undermines all of this, do not listen to him. There are actually records of Christians who were being taken advantage of by these traveling false prophets. Some of them were. Some of them were true prophets. But some of them were false teachers. And they brought wrong doctrine. Or perhaps their doctrine was right, as we see. But their practice, their lifestyle was wrong. And so it goes on to say, when the apostle leaves, he is to take nothing except bread until he finds his next night's lodging. But if he asks asks for money, he is a false prophet. There's other very specific commands that say he can stay with you one night at most two, but if he stays three, he's a false prophet. (laughs) Pretty harsh. But the Didache lived in a a time when a a traveling man of God who came into your town, that was the highlight of your year maybe. A, A chance to hear news of what the apostles were up to. A chance to hear news of what the persecution was like. Are we the only ones who are suffering? Tell us news. Tell us God's word. We don't really have leaders yet. We have, you know, an elder or a deacon who are trying to do their best, but they're still figuring things out. Bring God's word to us. And you can see how the potential would have been there for these traveling ministers to teach aberrant doctrine or to take advantage of these people's hospitality. And the Didache is very clear about this. Look here. But every genuine prophet who wishes to settle among you not just a traveling minister, but someone who says, I want to live and serve alongside you, is worthy of his food. And then it talks about first fruits of produce, livestock, even uh, goods like oil. Give these first fruits to the prophets, for they are your high priests. Again, can you see how this would develop into Roman Catholicism just a few centuries down the road? I can. But here, it's not saying anything unbiblical. Just like the priests, remember, from the Old Testament were supposed to be supported by the sacrifices. Remember, there was a very strict portion that the priests were supposed to have if you went and sacrificed at the tabernacle, at the temple. In a similar way, the Didache is saying, look, if you have a prophet or teacher of God, a man of God who wants to come and make their living with you and shepherd you, then you need to take care of them. And it goes on to talk about the qualifications of resident leaders who were not appointed from within outside, but actually arose or elected from within. Therefore, appoint for yourselves bishops and deacons worthy of the Lord, men who are humble and not avaricious and true and approved. It says, don't despise these type of men. So whether they are traveling or whether they've settled with you, or whether they organically came from your own group. Honor them. It's like 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7 talks about, Paul said, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. They want to be teachers of the law, but they're not. Very well may have been these type of traveling itinerant ministers who came in, got an audience, and thought they could just rule the church. 
Titus says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. Already in Titus, you see that transition. Okay, Titus, you're an apostolic representative, but I want you to organize the election of leaders in these churches, in these towns. That's the next step. And so I would say the theme of this is trust but verify. Have a high level of respect for your leaders. Honor them. Support them financially. But if they stop teaching God's word or if they start practicing something else, if they start becoming greedy, then they're not men of God anymore. They have disqualified themselves. That hasn't changed, friends. Men of God deserve your respect. Your elected leaders deserve your respect. They deserve your ear. But always verify by God's word. Always check with, like the Didache said, honor them, but verify what they're saying is right. And then briefly, the church ordinances. And I would say these were prescriptions for reverence. And I say that because the Didache prescripts very specific external forms It's not that it ignores the theology behind baptism, behind the Lord's Supper. But think of it as, I'm trying to think of of an amazing building, the Empire State Building. If you had never seen a tall building before and you walked up to the Empire State Building, you would say, wow, that is immense. That is impressive. That is beautiful. Oh, that's, yeah, what does it do? Oh, it's just just a building. Well, do people live it? no. There's no stairs. There's no elevators. Nobody washes the outside of it. Nobody takes care of it. There's no electricity to it. There's no running water. It's just a structure. It's beautiful, but there needs to be some scaffolding. There needs to be some building maintenance around it. And really, I think that's what the Didache is getting at with baptism and the Lord's Supper. Briefly, uh, 7.1, it talks about after you've reviewed all these things. Some scholars think that the catechumen, before they could be baptized, would have to recite the whole first five chapters of the Didache. And the preferred method was threefold immersion in cold running water. But there were exceptions made if it wasn't available. You think, man, cold running water, that's like the worst possible thing I can think to be baptized in. Well, that was what they said, threefold immersion, dunked three times, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And before the baptism, let the one baptizing and the one who is to be baptized fast, as well as any others who are able. It wasn't just an individualistic thing. It was a group celebration. It was a group evaluation. Did you meet the qualifications? Have you gone through the steps? Are you ready to become a full-fledged member of our church? Then welcome. We'll all fast, and then we'll have the supper together. You see that with communion, it was seen as a sacrifice from the body, on the Lord's own day, a testament to Sunday worship very early. If you have friends who say Saturday's the right day, less than 100 years after, 50 years really, after Jesus left, Christians were practicing Sunday worship. Having first confessed your sins so that your sacrifice may be pure. Christ sacrificed for us. We're going to be pure for our communion, our remembrance of the Lord's table. It was seen as a restricted privilege. Let no one eat or drink of your Eucharist except those who have been baptized in the name of the Lord. So they didn't just let anybody participate. You had to 
believe like we do, you had to have been baptized. You, assuming you would have had to go through that catechumen type class. And then it was seen as a liturgy with several prayers listed for the churches to pray during and after the ordinance. I'll spend a little more time next week, I think, on liturgy, on the positives and negatives of that. But I want to just go ahead and as we close, read this prayer out loud. This is to be prayed after communion. We give you thanks, Holy Father, for your holy name which you have caused to dwell in our hearts and for the knowledge of faith and immortality which you have made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. You, almighty master, created all things for your name's sake and gave food and drink to men to enjoy that they might give you thanks. But to us you have graciously given spiritual food and drink and eternal life through your servant. Above all, we give thanks because you are mighty. To you be the glory forever. Remember your church, Lord, to deliver it from all evil and to make it perfect in your love and gather it, the one that has been sanctified from the four winds into your kingdom, which you have prepared for it. For yours is the power and the glory forever. May grace come and may this world pass away. Hosanna to the God of David. If anyone is holy, let him come. If anyone is not, let him repent. Maranatha, amen. We'll see you next week.